You're listening to High Temperature Times, that place in a Venn diagram where holidays meet refractories. My name is Griffin Patterson, HWI application specialist by day, vampire on the hunt by night. This spookiest of holiday seasons sports jack-o'-lanterns, costume children, paranormal activity, and graveyard encounters to really help you don the festive mood. But for this Halloween episode of HTT, we're paying homage to the fact that Halloween wouldn't mean anything without the movies. But what's really going on in the high-temperature industrial environments in many of these movies, and what, or where, are the refractories involved there? As crazy as that sounds, you heard it right. We're going to take a look at some classic flicks, Halloween or otherwise, and see the refractory implications of these plot lines. So let's all head to the lobby, grab a popcorn and a drink, before finding that perfect location at the edge of our seats to break down some movies HTT style. Speaking of drinks, it seems apt to share a really unique technical marketing question we received and lay out how we flexed our research center's knowledge and experience to answer it. Anyone who's ever installed refractories knows that when you need something, you either get it immediately or you make do with what you got. Timing is top priority. And as we discussed on High Temperature Times back in December, sometimes you need to add a little something to your mixing process to tailor the refractory set time due to the impact of weather. Well, we'd heard the stories over the years that some installers choose to add interesting things to their mixing process when standard set accelerators or retarders aren't available. Before I go on, I should state that HWI recommends proper set accelerators and retarders like hydrated lime or citric acid, but for the sake of this scenario, we'll move past that. The item that some installers choose to add to their mix is none other than soda pop. So HWI's Advanced Research Technology Center put a couple different sodas to the test to see their effect on material set time. In this study, we looked at RC Cola, Pineapple Fanta, and Sugar-Free Ginger Ale. RC Cola acted as a high-sugar, no-citric acid pop, while Pineapple Fanta is a high-sugar, high-citric acid, and the Ginger Ale is a zero-sugar, citric acid-containing drink. When added to a 60% aluminum monolithic, at roughly 0.05% addition, the following was observed. The sugar in the sodas acted as a set retarder in the mix, despite even the citric acid content in the Pineapple Fanta. Additionally, despite being sugar-free, the ginger ale did not have any positive effect on the set time, indicating that the citric acid in it was not substantial enough to accelerate the mix without overwatering it. So, next time you need to modify the setting characteristics of your monolithics due to inclement weather, save your pop for the movies and give HWI a call to help you identify proper set accelerators or retarders to make the refractory work for you. Now that we've watched all the previews, let's get on with the feature. Whether it be Dawn of the Dead or Silence of the Lambs, Halloween wouldn't be the same without movies, just like life wouldn't be the same without refractories. So let's mix our metaphors and have a look at refractories in the movies. If you're not familiar with any of these scenes and questions, I've put links to them in the description of the episode, though I'll try my best to paint a picture as we run through it. Let's start with the 1971 classic Diamonds Are Forever, where American assassins Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd attempt to murder 007 by burning him alive in a coffin. That plan is, of course, foiled through Bond's sheer plot armor alone, when a diamond smuggler removes Bond from the cremation unit on account of the fake diamonds that he had previously tried to pawn off on him. But let's take a look at those short moments while Bond is feeling the heat through the cremation unit he's currently calling his last home. Will blitz past the Hollywood-esque controller with buttons for curtains and music, and immediately look at the cremation unit itself. It's really an impressive unit, appropriately bricked with what appears to be fire clay brick. It's clear that the set directors did their research and at least peeked inside of a cremation unit before budgeting their set. However, some things do cause the illusion to fall apart. Your traditional cast crematorium floor that uses materials like Kayla cast doesn't typically house a conveyor belt or metal rollers that you see here. After all, how would they function once they're appropriately gunked up with the visceral and heated to a couple thousand degrees Fahrenheit? 
I suspect that element was a much-needed function for the other curious item featured in the scene, which is the beautiful mahogany casket decked out with polished brass handles. While the dearly departed might be last seen in such a beautiful item, it would not be sent through the cremation process. Besides the sheer cost and workmanship that would literally be sent up in flames, the stained wood, cloth, and metallic elements would just do an extra number on the refractory and the thermal oxidizer process that occurs in the bottom chamber of the unit. Instead, replace that with a cardboard box, or perhaps a simple wood box due to the age of this film, and now we're getting closer to the real cremation unit. However, I think even Bond's would-be assassins hold the international spy in too high of a regard to call that his last home. The last factor that gave me a, a bit of a chuckle is the barbecue flames that they're heating the cremation unit with. Bond's casket might as well have been thrown on the grill if that's the effect they were going for. Typical cremation units don't have those cute candles coming out the sides or the barbecue burners running across the top, since they wouldn't be doing much more damage than standing next to the tiki torch in your backyard. In reality, a single burner, akin to a jet engine, would be burning straight downwards towards the cremation unit floor. Unfortunately, reality wouldn't have bode well for our hero, as it would have ripped through him far too quickly for the diamond smuggler to save him. Speaking of which, while I'm sure it's possible to open a cremation unit halfway through its burn, it would not fare well for the refractories, as typical refractories used in the unit are not especially thermal shock resistant. They do bear the cyclical conditions used in these settings being heated and cooled on a daily basis. However, these cycles follow the recommended 100 degrees Fahrenheit per hour heating and cooling, where a shady tree opening the furnace midway through the burn would surely lead to some advanced wear on the refractory due to the sharp drop in temperature. Though, now that I think about it, I guess the temperature couldn't have been too high or Bond wouldn't have been pulled out alive at all. All in all, production designers Ken Adam and Peter Lamont did a fair job at recreating the crematorium for this short scene, hitting us with all the feels on the surface, but being fairly lacking upon further look. I just have to ask though, why didn't they use an actual cremation unit? Next up, we're going toe-to-toe -to -toe against one of the baddest villains in cinematic history, the T-1000. Terminator 2, Judgment Day, released in 1991, brought Arnold Schwarzenegger back to Los Angeles to protect the young John Connor from a threat that made all young material scientists giggle with glee. Robert Patrick's T-1000 was truly a sight to behold, made of a mimetic poly alloy that deforms rather than destroys and can reconstitute itself after any attack. But what even is a mimetic poly alloy? The mimetic part comes from the fact that the T-1000 can change into or mimic any shape that it touches. So that leaves us with a poly alloy. Best I can surmise beyond throwing the words like movie magic into the air is that it's going to be an advanced metallic alloy or multiple different alloys working together to allow the antagonistic Terminator to deform and come back together in such a majestic fashion. But that's not useless because we can conclude that it is metallic. All right, much ado, but not about nothing. Let's get to the scene. After the movie's upteenth chase scene involving an awesome se sequence with liquid nitrogen, the somewhat malfunctioning T-1000 once again has Sarah and John Connor on the ropes in a steel mill. A couple of shotgun blasts and a grenade launcher later, the T-1000 falls to his death in a tundish of molten steel. Afterwards, Arnie convinces John Connor that he too must be destroyed and he is lowered into the molten metal, giving us that infamous thumbs up on the way out. A great end to a great movie. But let's take a step back and look at the setting of this awesome event. Where the hell even are they? Well, it turns out they were at a decommissioned Kaiser Steel plant located east of Los Angeles. That explains why there were no workers there. They had not worked there since the early 80s. But it is neat to know they still use a location for filming movies like this and Michael Douglas's Black Rain. 
Jokes aside, a steel mill wouldn't just be running like that during some sort of emergency. I can't speak for what it was like in the 90s, but these days when an event forces people to leave a facility, the ladles won't just continue to pour. The overflowing ladle you see reheating the T-1000 after being frozen in liquid nitrogen is certainly possible, but they would at least stop the pour from going into the tundish later on in that scene. But I guess it's just too incredible of a visual to miss. I will say that the tundish of molten steel will still absolutely be a tundish of molten steel. It would take days to freeze all that off. I mean, think about how much thermal energy is in there. John Peters talked about this a little bit last Halloween with his story on a power outage at a steel mill. The point is, these mills don't just run themselves. Hundreds of smart and dedicated workers help keep the steel flowing. Anyways, jumping ahead a little bit, I thought it might be fun to theorize what happens when the T-1000 and then the T-800 are thrown into the tundish of molten steel. For one, the chemistry of steel is pretty well controlled. The Kaiser Fontana steel plant was originally used to make steel plate for shipbuilding, thanks to its proximity to one of the largest shipping locations in the US. And shipbuilding typically uses stainless steel for its resistance to corrosion, which has a pretty tight tolerance on the compositional scale. Fortunately, it's a really big tundish and not something I'd ever seen before. So the overall compositional change would likely be quite small over such a high tonnage in that tundish. Given that they did film in an actual steel plant, I, I can't fault anything in industrial accuracy. You can't get much better than the real thing. Uh, by the way, the molten steel you saw was actually brought to life through a mixture of oil, powdered sugar, and water with bits of plastic floating in it that would be illuminated by the orange fluorescent lights. And it was so realistic that former workers at the Fontana plant actually believed that the location was back up and running. But the only heat that Robert Patrick and Arnold Schwarzenegger were feeling were those of the studio lights. It does explain the Shamu-sized splash that occurred when the T-1000 fell into the Tundish. Remember, just because it's liquid doesn't mean it's water. Molten steel has a density of 7 grams per cubic centimeter, which is 7 times denser than water. To put that into perspective, a tub full of honey or syrup or molasses, and you can think about how thick that is, would only be about 50% more dense than water, not 700% more dense. Landing in molten steel would actually be a lot more like landing on molten steel. The only way that the T-1000 or the T-800, who was lowered in shortly after, would be sloshing and splashing around like that is if they're seven times more dense as well. And that's entirely possible given that they're made out of metal, not flesh and bone, but I might challenge how a 1,500-pound robot can be supported by a motorcycle driving 70 down the highway earlier in the movie. Fortunately, while the metal might not be in ship shape for ship shapes, the refractory should be okay since the slag that forms on top would not be any more aggressive than the impurities and fluxes that typical refractory brands like Barricade withstand so readily. I guess I can't quite say that since I have no idea what the hyper-reactive polyalloy that makes up the T-1000 is, but I can say that refractories used in the steel industry go through a gamut of testing at HWI's Advanced Technology and Research Center, as well as qualification testing at the steel plants they're used in. They stand up to the most extreme conditions. All in all, I think Terminator 2 stands as an icon in industrial cinematography and a wonderful testament to the benefits of practical effects over visual effects. Aside from the lack of workers and the not-so-Olympic-sized splash during the T-1000's high dive, the steel mill scene is just a wonderful piece of art, and I fully applaud the set designer, the late John Dwyer, for his attention to detail in the work that was done. The last scene I want to talk about is less of a scene and more of a trope common to horror movies, burning victims in a municipal boiler. I'm thinking of horror flicks like the 2019 Solstice season of Slasher, Nightmare on Elm Street, and even the recently released Netflix film Nightbooks. 
Maybe less of a popular trope in modern horror cinema because of the common trend for green energy, but who doesn't have childhood memories of scary noises coming from the boiler in the basement and thinking it was a monster? Even movies like Home Alone with Kevin McAllister running from the basement boiler opening and closing its jaws. So a logical leap for people to think of boilers as evil and then use them in horror movies to dispose of bodies. However, what would happen if human remains were to be burned in a municipal boiler? Not so fun fact, these stories are not always just stories. Marcel Patois, the butcher of Paris, was a medical physician in France who murdered who he believed to be members of the French resistance, covering their bodies in quicklime to mask the smell of the burning flesh, and then burning the dismembered victims in the facility boiler. He was caught when he burned too many victims in the house at the same time, and then left the house for several days. The fire burned out of control and spewed foul-smelling smoke across the neighborhood for five days. Neighbors then sent for the police and firefighters, and the victims were found with Patois arrested. But boilers are not cremation units and should not be used as such. But why not? Let's take a look at these kinds of boilers. So you have a large unit with a few doors and a lot of magic happening inside. The bottom of it is your firebox, where your fuel source, typically coal, is burnt. The coal is burning on a graded system that allows ash to fall through into a bed after a certain amount of time and then swept away. The heat and fumes produced from the feedstock run up along a series of tubes to transfer as much heat as possible to the water tube before being sent out the stack. So where does the problem lie when switching from coal to bits of neighbors, or really in changing any feedstock? The main factor here is time, but certain aspects of a boiler are more sensitive to certain elements of human remains as feedstock. For example, I've heard stories of people using larger, moving grate boilers to occasionally burn deer carcasses, with no significant wear to the boiler apart from the occasional bone bits left behind. However, looking at larger municipal boilers that burn biomass, one of the challenges that has to be maintained is using a series of sensors to measure the pH. If the waste stream varies, the pH of the flue gas varies, so acids or alkalis need to be added to the flue gas washer to prevent corrosion of the steel tubes. However, the metal tubes are thick enough that no serial killer will run a campaign of murders long enough to cause leaking in the water tubes. In the firebox, however, the refractory could see more accelerated wear depending on the amount or types of bodies being burned. Blood and fats are highly alkali liquids when burned, and most refractories using coal-fired boilers are not built to withstand anything more than just the light ashing that occurs when burning coal. Thus, too much visceral from the bodies pooling or interacting with the commonly used boiler refractories like KS4V will lead to cracking, swelling, and erosion in the fire clay castable. This is why we don't use these materials in cremation units. The alkalis will attack the free alumina or the free silica in these relatively straightforward castables, causing a strong reaction. We spoke to this a little bit in our episode Less is More, and if you're interested in learning more about these reactions. But for cremation units, we take a step up and we look at materials like Kalacast, which is very strong in alkali environments due to the raw materials and the manufacturing process tying up all of the free alumina and free silica. Though I don't think our serial killers are going to have enough forethought to upgrade their refractories before starting to dispose of their enemies. One thing I have to respect from the makers of these movies or shows that utilize this trope is that, for the most part, they never just chuck a body in the boiler. People are fairly large, and fireboxes just aren't. The doors on a boiler designed for small-scale residential use, like those found in apartment basements, are quite small, and the firebox is kept intentionally small to encourage complete combustion of the coal. So if you think you're going to dispose of a body in there, you're going to need to do it one limb at a time. Not quite the neat and tidy disposal that you want, huh? Roll credits. That's it for this look at refractories in the movies. 
There were quite a few good other options to talk about, from Luke and Leia's fight in the clone steel mill, to the Armorer's Forge in The Mandalorian, or even Drogon melting the Iron Throne in Game of Thrones. Let's just say that not many of them get it right. So if you're planning on making a movie involving a refractory line vessel, consider reaching out to us at tactical-marketing at thinkhwi.com to get some pointers. In the meantime, I hope you enjoyed this episode gearing up for the holiday, and I hope you have a haunted Halloween. Thanks for listening.